Happy New Year. So glad that each one of you are here this morning. Well, it's a new year, an opportunity to uh, say thank you, God, for bringing us through 2022, and also to say thank you, God, for this new year that you've given us with a lot of possibilities as we come to bow our knee at his footstool, to give him the honor and glory that's due his name, and to commit this year to him for his honor and his glory. So I invite you to stand and let us sing about the great things that our God has done and about the great things he's going to do in the near future. Come let us worship our King. Come let us bow at his feet. He has done great Break every 
Okay, so wait a minute before you sit down. Let's do something different. I tell you to change seats, but we've already done that because we're doing one service. But you're probably sitting next to somebody you don't know. So wish each other a happy new year this morning and bless them. Good job. Well, welcome to 2023. Is this the year that Jesus will come back? It would be a good thing, wouldn't it? I'm ready. But till he comes back, he's told us to occupy, to to be busy and to do his work and to do a number of things that, that he's called us to do, to to not forsake the assembling of the saints has a custom to some, right? So maybe a New Year's resolution for 2023 is not forsake the assembling of the saints, right? Make it a point of coming and worshiping and, and being in church and fellowship. We're going to continue in our worship a number of different ways this morning. We're going to worship through giving. Giving is our opportunity to be able to worship God, to be able to acknowledge what He has provided for us. So when we give, we're giving back to God the first fruits of that which He's given to us. And the ushers will come forward for that. And then we're going to have a time of worshiping through communion. I think we're blessed to be able to have communion on the 1st of January. To start out the, the, this year, focusing on what Jesus has done for us. And to worship and thank Him for that. And then we'll worship through music and, and through the study of God's Word as we return to our studies in Acts 19. So let's pray. God, I thank You. For everything that you provided in 2022. God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that has been with us. You've walked with us through the hard times. And Lord, I know that there are families that are going through hardships even now. That in 2022, there was losses of many different kinds. There was illnesses and sufferings and some haven't fully recovered. Lord, I pray for those that are sick. Those that have suffered heart issues and and just COVID and the long-term effects of that. Lord, I pray for those that have suffered just all kinds of different conditions. Yet, God, you are faithful and you are kind and you are loving. And even in the difficult times, you are good all the time. Lord, may we worship you even with the first fruits of that which you've given to us, these offerings, and use them for your kingdom. May we worship you in remembering you, Lord Jesus, through communion and through music and singing praises to you. And Holy Spirit, may you touch us through the study of your word. May you be honored today by all that's said and done. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
chain-breaking, miracle-making, powerful name of Jesus. The reason we can do that is because of this table before us. And Jesus said to His disciples, a new covenant I make with you. So we have a God who makes covenant. He doesn't just leave us on our own, but He gives us all of the tools, His Word, His Holy Spirit, to allow us to live this Christian life that He calls us to and allowing us to surrender our lives to Him 
wholeheartedly. And so as we partake of communion this morning, as we sing this next song, as the elements are passed out, I invite you to take a moment and before your God, commit this year to Him. Do some business with Him and say, God, be Lord of this year for me as we start anew. What a wonderful opportunity, the first day of the new year, that we can remind ourselves of God's great blessing by Him giving us His life, shedding His blood for us so that we could be free from sin and live a new life in honor and glory of our God. So, ushers, would you come and serve the people and um, pray, talk with God, join us in on this song, but let's do business with our God this morning and celebrate our new year and our covenant with Him.
all stand before the Lord. Because of the blood of Jesus, you're no longer who you were. You've been set free. The bondage of sin has been broken. The chains have been shattered. And now you're free to be able to live a life, a new life. In this new year, we get to celebrate that new life every day in a new way. But it didn't come without a price. So let's pause for a moment and reflect on what it costs to have this new life. Jesus who gave his life his body to be the sacrifice for your sins and mine when we think about the new life that we have it's a gift how you use that gift how you honor that gift really is up to you To discard it would be foolish. Jesus came to earth, walked in our steps, sinless to be the sinless sacrifice that we might be able to enjoy that new life. The bread that we hold reminds us of His body, everything that He went through to give us new life. And not just a life on this rock, but life eternal. Now, we will never, ever know separation from God because of what Jesus has done. It's greater than anything that we could ever experience. Life eternal. And it begins now. Lord Jesus, we hold this bread up to you. We ask that you bless it. As we partake of it as one body with you, the head, Lord Jesus, one family. One fellowship of believers having in common one Savior that died for our sins. We don't deserve it. It's not by our works. But it's by your grace. Your grace that washes over us every day. We thank you for the gift of grace. The gift of forgiveness that was given to us. Because you died for our sins. We remember you. We honor you. We thank you. As we take this bread, we do so by faith to honor our risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's all take a prayer. Let's hold the cup up. Lord Jesus, we hold this cup up to you. Over 2,000 years ago, you lifted a cup. And you told your disciples to take this cup. It reminds us of the new covenant that we would live under until you come back. That as often as we drink of this cup, we're to remember you. To remember that our sins, though red as scarlet, are washed. Now we're purified, made white as snow. Lord Jesus, help us to remember what this cup has reminded us of, what it, what it really means. It's not the power of grape juice that cleanses us, it's the power of the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And as we remember you, may we honor you. 
with our life, our voices, and everything about us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup together. Thank you, Lord. As is our practice, and in response to all the gifts that God has given to us, on Communion Sunday, we take up a special benevolent offering. Benevolent meaning loving gifts. This offering goes towards meeting people's physical needs. Things that are going on so that we can be the hands of Jesus to people in our church body that has a need and to those into our community, and there are many. Let me pray over that as the ushers come forward and gather that up. And we'll continue to worship. God, I thank you for the grace gift that you've given to us through your son, Jesus. Lord, out of that grace gift, we want to give towards meeting the needs of others. Lord, you know where every dollar needs to go. To the person that needs help in keeping the lights on or keeping the heat on or paying for meds or, or putting, putting a roof on their house or, or putting a ramp to their door. Putting gas in their tank. Buying groceries. Whatever it is. Lord, we pray over these dollars even now that they would go to meet the needs of those that are in need. Not that we would be seen as the giver, but that, Lord Jesus, you would be seen as the giver. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, 
back in Acts chapter 19. If you would, open up your Bibles there and we're going to begin with verse 21, taking a look at our journey through Acts with that. Many people use New Year's Day as, as the opportunity to be able to kind of to have a new start. Just out of curiosity, how many of you guys all made it to New Year's Eve last night? I was in bed at 10 o'clock. I figure, you know, midnight and 10 o'clock, they are all going to look the same, so I'm good. But, you know, as we look at New Year's and this opportunity, a lot of people will make New Year's resolution. I'm sure you all have your New Year's resolutions started. No. no. I don't make them because I break them on the second. It's just, it's futile for me. You know, because in myself, I, I know that I can't really accomplish much. But one of the things that New Year's does offer is the opportunity to be able to set aside the things of the past and be able to look forward. We all do that. 2022 has gone behind. 23 is moving forward. We all hope for 23 to be a better year. Better being that Jesus would come back. That would be great. But the hard thing about like resolutions and those things is it's hard to make change. And I find the older that I get, the more set in my ways that I become. There are certain things I like. I traveled this last week down to California and visited my stepmom, and I couldn't wait to get home to my chair. I like my chair. To my own bed and such things. Why? Because that old nature gets so embedded. And, and it's hard to change because we've always done it that way. And the older you get, the more set in your ways. And you say, well, I've always done it that way. And, and it's really hard to see and, and have things that are new. And the same thing is true spiritually. As a Christ follower, you've been set free of your sin, true. You've been justified and made as if you had never sinned, and that is a great thing. 
But there is this ongoing process, this progressive sanctification, where God is taking us through this ongoing change within that. And there's a lot of people that resist change. They don't like change. Change becomes uncomfortable. Change is, is unpredictable. Change often costs us way too much. Financially, we don't like it. And I can tell you this, in, in being in this world for the time that I've been, one of the things that people really struggle with is the, are the ungodly ones. Because the idea of, of following after Christ and coming to faith means that there needs to be a spiritual transformation, a spiritual change. And they don't like it. I don't want to become a Christian because that means I can't do the things that I used to do. And, and so it is difficult when we're giving the gospel and preaching the gospel because the gospel is the message of spiritual transformation. It's taking an old person that is dead, burying them, and new life is coming. And that new life can be scary. It's, it's a revival. And spiritual transforma transformation takes place when you become a new creation and the old things have passed away within that. That spiritual transformation is, is something that only God can do. And He does it one time at the point of salvation and the time when He gives to you His Spirit. And then from that point on, you go to this ongoing process of being conformed into the image of Christ. As you lay aside the old man, consider him dead, pick up your cross, and follow after Jesus. It's a revival that takes place every day, but the ungodly don't like it. Because it challenges their comfort. You ever wonder why the world hates Christians so much? Because we preach the gospel of transformation... And they don't like it because it challenges their comfort zone. It challenges where they're at. And, and also, spiritual transformation and following after Christ means that it's a complete sacrifice. It, it, it means that you have to give up the old to have the new. Jesus would say this in Matthew 16, 24-26. If anyone wishes to come after me, note, he must deny himself. Oh, wait a minute, I don't know about that. Take up his cross, that means death, and follow after me. For whoever wishes to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Rhetorical answer is, it won't profit him anything. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Which is an interesting question. What would you give in exchange? What are you willing to give up for the salvation of your soul? You say, well, I'll give up some things. No, you have to give up everything within that. We're picking up here in the book of Acts. As Luke is writing this, this treaty, this message, to a man named Theophilus, lover of God, and this, this Theophilus is trying to figure out, well, how did the church start, and, and what is really about the church, and, and, and how did it grow? We know the Gospel of Luke tells us all about Jesus, and, the God, and Acts tells us all about the beginnings of the church, and how the church expanded and grew within the origins of faith. We've been moving through Acts, and the journey of Paul as the Gospel has been spreading out to the Gentiles. It's moving from Jerusalem 
through Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, as was the Great Commission. And so as a reminder, just to kind of give you an idea where we're at, Acts chapter 13 gives us, and, and so forth, gives us the, the ongoing movement of the gospel. In Paul's first and second journeys, he went up into Antioch, and then he would go around and he would create and plant the seven churches in Asia here. The gospel then would go up into Macedonia and into Corinth and back into Ephesus, which is where we're going to be today. So there was two trips that Paul had made in sending the gospel out. Both, And if you're taking notes, Acts 13 to 14 is his first trip. Acts 15 all the way through to 18 is his second trip. His third trip that we're going to be working on today is Acts 18 through 21. The third trip would take him from Antioch all the way through Lystra and then through Macedonia, Corinth, and then back through. So we're picking up here in Ephesus, that's here. He's about to go to Macedonia where he's going to pick up special offering. Why is he picking up a special offering? He's picking up a special offering because the people in Jerusalem down here are being persecuted for being Christians. They're not allowed to have jobs and, and all of these things. And so as the churches are being established over this period of time, those that were the Gentiles that were all up into this area here, Lystra, all the way through here, have benefited from the gospel, and they are sending money back to Jerusalem to help support the origins of the church. From there, Paul will take one more trip to Rome. He will start here at Caesarea, and then he will travel all the way through up to Rome where he will finish this out, and that will cover that in Acts chapter 21 all the way through 28. Now back to Ephesus. We last left Paul in Ephesus. Paul would spend, and if you remember, Paul spent two and a half years in Ephesus. The longest time that he would spend establishing the church. Those of you that went to Turkey with us, we went to Ephesus and we saw it was an amazing sight. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. That people were, were being healed and, and all of these things were happening as the, as the gospel and the power of the gospel was moving in this town. People were coming to faith like none other. And there was a spiritual transformation that was taking place as the Holy Spirit was opening the eyes of this highly idolatrous city. They were so entrenched in idolatry that they were the premier city. They would have what we will learn as one of the seven wonders of the world in idolatry in this temple that is there. And what ended up happening is what we see all the time. When the gospel is preached and people's lives are changed, transformed, opposition rises. The opposition challenges that transformation because it becomes uncomfortable. If we think about Jesus, as Jesus' ministry in his first year, did many people oppose him? Not so much. But by the time his third year came around, who was against him? All the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel that was to come, and they hated that, and they were going to be out of a job. So, what happens when people's jobs are threatened? When their well-being is at risk, and their normal life is being challenged? They want to eliminate that. They want to destroy it. And so the religious leaders were threatened by Jesus, and they sought to kill him. The same thing happened with Paul. As Paul would preach the gospel, and the gospel would be preached in all of these cities, 
It was challenging the current condition and the society wanted to stop the gospel at all costs. Persecute them. We fast forward to 2022. Is it any different in our world today? Where the gospel is being preached, but society wants to silence the gospel. Why? Because it makes the society uncomfortable. Because the gospel declares the truth of God's Word and what sin really is, and people don't want to hear it for a couple of reasons. One, it challenges their lifestyle, but two, it's going to cost them too much, as we're going to see as the origin of this. And preaching the gospel is going to be divisive. The world says, let's all get along. Let's all just accept each other and their differences and all of these things. And let's just all get along. I'm sorry. Your sin is offensive to God. And it separates you from God. And if you continue in that sin, you're going to spend eternity away from God. But God wants to give you life. He wants to forgive you of that sin and and receive you into His presence. You'll choose to accept it or reject it. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. And that's the gospel truth. That Jesus died for you to give you new life. But it will confront the ungodly. And they will reject it. One, because it's going to cost them too much. Two, it calls them to change. So let's stand as we read through our passage this morning. Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. We'll let the Holy Spirit do the teaching this morning. Verse 21 says this, and you can follow along on the screen or on your Bibles. Now, after these things were finished, Paul proposed in spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that not all, or that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. city was filled with confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also, some of the Asiarchs were friends of his, sent to him and said, repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. And so some were shouting one thing and some another. The assembly was in confusion, and the majority didn't know for what reason they had come together. 
Well, some of the crowds concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all and shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm. Do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. And so then... If Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session. The proconsuls are available. Let them bring charge against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we're in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events. And since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we will be unable to account for the disorderly gathering... And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So Luke gives a narrative of the events. He's narrating to Theophilus the events that was happening here in Ephesus. This, this riot, this transition of ministry that is there. Now it really does pick up on the previous verses in 18 to 22. Where we read, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Note, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. True faith was willing to have great sacrifice. These Ephesians that were coming to faith, their, their mind was blown, and they're like, this is amazing, and, and the Holy Spirit was entering in, and the transformation was taking place. And what they were doing was they were taking their cultic practices, their scrolls of spells, and all of these things, and they were bringing them out, and they were burning them. And these books were expensive. Not books like what we have, but scrolls. They were extremely expensive. And it we're told that, that the expense was 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's estimate, in our economy, $35,000 worth of books and scrolls and all of that was burned. Did they care? No. Why? Because they realized what they were doing was wrong. Not just a little bit wrong, a lot wrong. And so what they were doing was they were getting rid of Everything that was part of their old life and the cultic practices. Because they were worshiping. These were tools and instruments that the devil was using to keep them in bondage. And they had to get rid of them. To be able to, to remove them completely was there. And it was a process. And it was very expensive. This is what revival does. When your heart is transformed, when you are spiritually transformed, and God changes your heart, what you do is you, you get rid of all of those old things that you used to worship. You can't have just a little bit. You can't hang on to it. But you get rid of it completely. The problem was they were living in a culture 
that celebrated idolatry. It was part of the norm. It was part of the existing time. And you think about it. So if you were to take a look at spiritual transformation of an alcoholic. As God would transform the alcoholic from the inward, the outward would be that the alcoholic would go through and wipe out everything that was there. Say they had, and and it used to be a thing, you probably don't see too much anymore, but it used to be a thing in, in my parents' day where people would have bars in their houses. They'd have a wooden bar and they'd have, you know, a whole liquor wall that was all full of all the liquor and all the things that were there. And revival and spiritual transformation would look like this. I've come to faith and trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I can't come to the shrine of alcohol anymore. Therefore, I'm ripping the bar out and I'm eliminating all of the alcohol. I went, had the opportunity to go to dinner for my birthday, and there was a guy that was pushing this cart with booze on it. And he had a bottle there that I was told that, that was worth like, I don't know, $50,000 or something. It's like, can you imagine a bottle of booze worth fifty grand? Ridiculous. Spiritual transformation says I'm going to take that fifty fifty grand, that, that $50,000 bottle of booze and I'm going to pour it down the drain. And you're like, whoa! Get rid of it. Spiritual transformation looks like this. One who worships on the river on his fishing boat. And God says, it's an idol to you. Get rid of it. You're saying, Carrie, now you're meddling. (laughs) You sell the boat. Because it was an idol. That's what revival looks like. Completely getting rid of that which attaches you to the idolatry, the connection. If it's TV, if it's movies, or whatever it is that is the thing that holds you in bondage, it has to go away at all cost. You say, well, can I hang on to it? You know, that boat is a great place for ministry. I'll I'll preach to people in in the boat. No. If it's an idol, get rid of it. At all cost. You don't hang on to it. But the problem is, when the world watches this, it makes them nervous. Why? Because you become radical. It makes them nervous because this might impact their comfort and their livelihood within this. This following Christ requires great personal sacrifice. Not just for the people in these previous verses that burn their books, but now Paul is, is sending, we're going to go to Macedonia. And so he gets a couple of guys, Timothy and Erastus, and he says, I want you to go ahead of me up into Macedonia, and I want you to talk with the people that are there, because they need to support the believers in Jerusalem, and they've benefited from it. Well, the economy wasn't really good at that time, but yet at great cost, they would sacrifice from their own pocketbook to support somebody else. And you think about these people, Paul and Timothy and Erastus, there was no missions agency that was really supportive. It was on their own dime. Paul left and did this on his own. Timothy, Erastus, why? For the sake of the gospel. To go out and to share the gospel, to go ahead of them. And as Paul would spend two and a half years, oftentimes he would do so even, even in his own work. He would work just to do mission. 
within us. Paul's getting ready to finish out his ministry in Ephesus. So he sends these two guys out ahead of him. It's drawing to a close. He knows in Acts chapter 20 he has to go to Jerusalem. And he's forewarned, as we're going to cover next week, he's forewarned, if you go, it's going to cost you your life. You say, well, wait a minute, that's a pretty high cost, Carrie. Yeah, it is. Would you be willing to give your life? We've been praying for a missionary that's in Mozambique that is with Mission Aviation Fellowship for flying an airplane is now sitting in jail. And all he was doing was bringing food to people. Pray for him and his family because he's still in jail. And it's costing him. And mission will. There is a spiritual battle and a war for souls. And as you step out in mission... Whatever that is, your friends and your family are going to go, you're nuts. Why? Because they don't get it. Why do you want to spend all your time? In fact, they'll, they'll hate you because of it. They'll reject you. You're going to get persecution. But Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Note, because of me, hence the gospel. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Preaching the gospel confronts ungodliness. It is an unpopular message. Because the gospel puts up the first thing that people have to deal with, and that's their sin that separates them from God. And then having recognized my sin, God also provides the solution that Jesus died on the cross for that sin so I can be with God. But you first have to preach the gospel and confront that sin. And that is unpopular today, isn't it? It's unpopular to say that this lifestyle is sinful. That this practice is sinful. It's unpopular. But that's okay. We need to preach the truth at all costs. And know that the ungodly is going to reject this spiritual transformation. It is a war within this. So Luke picks up. Basically, where the offense left off in verses 17 to 20, this rejection. It says, now after these things, after what things? After Paul set up the people to go, after the people were coming out and burning their books, and all of these things, Paul determined that he wanted to go to Rome. All of this was set up. And about that time, verse 23, no small disturbance concerning the way. Well, you say, who's the way? Early Christians were called Christians in Antioch first, but the way was the the real name for Christianity. Why the way? Because Jesus said, I am the what? Way, the truth, and the life. So anybody that was a follower after Jesus was part of the way. That was the name. So now Christianity has an official name by unbelievers known as the way. And these ungodly people were going to incite a riot. So there was this guy by the name of Demetrius. He was a silversmith. And he made the silver shrines of Artemis. That was there within this. He was the leader of the silversmith guild, 
we would call them today unions. So imagine this is the guy that's in charge of the union. Now, I don't, I don't know how you feel about unions. I really don't care. But unions are strong. They're powerful. They have the capacity to shape whole societies within that. So Demetrius is not no small person. He is in charge. He is the union leader for the silversmith guild that is there. What were they in charge of? Making idols. They were in charge of making idols that were there of Artemis. Now, I got a couple of pictures that I want to show with you. So this is a picture of Artemis. Artemis is, that's a pretty funny looking god, isn't it? But this was an idea. Artemis was the mother of, considered the mother of all living. And Artemis was this, this high god that was worshipped in Ephesus. That was there. And it was believed that this, this idol that was here, this idol actually was sent down out of the sky from Jupiter. Jupiter made that. You must have a god. Let me, let me give you this god of stone. And so the story goes that Jupiter had sent this down for all these people to worship within this. And so what did they do? They built this huge temple. The temple that is here, as you can see, had a platform and then the temple itself. And Artemis was right there in the middle. This is the size of a regular football field. And you can see how much bigger this was just outside of the city itself in Ephesus. In fact, it's considered one of the seventh wonders of the world. The dimensions itself of the temple was 165 feet by 345 feet. Sitting on a platform of 240 feet by 240 feet square, wrapped in brilliant colors and laced with gold leaf. It was a big deal. One of the seventh wonders of the world. Massive. It took 222 years to build it and was made out of marble. Amazing what they would do for this. And it was in Ephesus. Now there were 33 other temples to Artemis throughout the Roman Empire. But this was the one. This was the main one. And so what did they do? They made a business. What did they make the business of? How many of you guys have ever traveled and you went to the, to the trinket store and you saw all the little trinkets hanging? Well, if you can't come to Ephesus, then we're going to make a God for you and you can take your God home. Come over here. You can buy your God. Put your God in your pocket. Carry it with you. Oh, don't stop there because your God needs a house. Let's make this house for your God. So Artemis was made out of silver. The temple made out of silver. Why? So that people can carry their God around in their pocket. Does that make sense to you? It did to them. It did to them. And so Demetrius and all of the silversmiths had this huge business of making money and merchandising religion. Does that happen in our world today? Absolutely it does. Merchandising faith. It wasn't about faith. It was about the money. And making merchandise off of people for the faith. And so Demetrius, who loved himself more than the people, and loved money more than people, 
was upset. Why? Because the spiritual transformation of the Ephesians was now getting into his business. People were burning their books. What happens if, what happens if all of the Ephesus starts following after the way? And, and they start following this one true God. By the way, the gospel that Paul preached said there is only one God. No other gods. And God is spirit. And you worship Him in spirit and in truth. Which in essence says, Artemis is fake. Your business and your business plan and business model all goes out the window. All for the love of money he would begin to persecute. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is, note, a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's a lot of people today that love money, love possessions. They love their God in their pocket or whatever it is that they worship more than God, more than Jesus. But when you come to faith, you understand that things have changed. Now, Paul was accepted as long as he was in the hall of Tyrannius. If you remember, he was preaching there. As long as you stay in your house, Paul. Let people come to you, Paul, in Tyrannius. This hall, and then they can hear the message that's there. But keep your message contained in the box. What happened? The message of the gospel was coming out of the box. Today, church... We're acceptable if we keep our message in the building. But what happens when the gospel leaves the building? The world becomes offended. What happens when the gospel leaves the church building? You can have your church. You can stay in your building and do what you want to do. But don't let your message influence my life. Don't let it influence government. Don't let it influence lifestyle. The preaching of the gospel would be tolerated as long as it stays behind the closed doors. And so what does the world do today? It tries to silence the Christian witness and put the Christian church back in the building. Don't let them do that. Preach the gospel. It'll be divisive. It'll be Offensive, but that's okay. People need to understand the true gospel. So what does he do? Well, verses 28 to 34, Demetrius develops this negative opinion and spreads this opinion throughout the people. First he goes to the silversmiths and he says, look, we're going to lose a lot of money. But then he rationalizes it and he says, not only are we going to lose a lot of money, but he goes to the other people and he says, they're telling us our God, our God is not real. And so he pokes at people's emotions. You want to get somebody really motivated at something? Don't give them logic. Give them something to hate. Poke the emotion. Rally the people and touch their emotions so that they will go against whatever is coming forward and whatever you're, whatever you're, you're sharing. Ben Franklin once said this, A mob is a monster... With heads and no brains. 
Is that true? Did we not experience that in Portland? What is your problem? I don't know, but we're breaking windows. Why are you so upset? I don't know, but they told us that we could do this. Why are you destroying it? You know, you think about this. Years and years ago in the Rodney King trials and all of that, when I was in L.A., it amazed me because people were burning their own community. What are you doing? I don't know, but everybody else is doing it. A mob with no brains, heads, no brains. So Demetrius appeals to the crowd. He incites the riot based on civic pride. He uses an emotional trigger to get people against them. And doesn't the world do that today? Doesn't the world use an emotional trigger to rally the masses against the message of the gospel? And so the city spills out on the, what is called the Akkadian Way. Now, when we were in Turkey here in October, we saw two different meeting places. One was the Civic Theater, the meeting place, much smaller. And then the other was the large theater where everybody was capable of going. In the Civic Theater that was much smaller, it would come right out onto a main street and move forward. But then they would move out into... The other place. Now, what ended up happening, and I've got an image here of what it would look like. So, this is the Acadian Way. This is the big theater that is here in Ephesus. There's a road that runs right along here. And if you were to follow this road, this is a marketplace. This Acadian Way back in the day used to go into, this used to all be water, but the water's receded. And so now the water's way back here. But this Acadian Way used to land in a harbor that was right along here. The library of Ephesus is over here. And then if you made a left and follow it around, then you would end up into the, the, the smaller area. So what had happened was they had followed out and gone past the library. And they're along this road, along this Acadian Way, outside of the marketplace. And the masses are rallying so much that they're filling that place. That theater itself, and I think I have another picture of it. Do I? Yes, I do. So this theater itself would hold 24,500 people. 24,500 people. And now if you think about it from the, the, the aspect of we're challenging Artemis and the temple, would people be motivated to come out? Yeah, they were. And what did they do? We don't know who we're mad at, but we're going to grab somebody. So they started grabbing people that were in there. And so they, they, they start grabbing people, and, and they grabbed a couple of companions that are along with, with Paul and trying to, to get them in. And, and so within this, there was this huge danger. Now, Paul is not there. Paul's trying to eject himself, and his friends are saying, don't do this. This will be bad for you. Would it be bad for Paul? Sure, he was the point man. The other thing that I think is interesting that, that we find in this text that is there is that the Jews put out this guy named Alexander. Now, Alexander was a Hellenistic Jew, and the Hellenistic Jews didn't want anything to do with Christianity. Poor Alexander, these Hellenistic Jews. Could you imagine? They say, Alexander, you go tell them that, us, that we as Jews don't have any part of this. 
Alexander says, okay, I'm going to go say that the Jews have no part of this Christian thing. He goes up there and tries to silence the crowd. And what does the crowd do? They don't listen to him. They just yell even louder. Why? Because they're a mob. Many heads, no brains. And all they want is blood. All they want is, is to be able to yell and scream and gather. The Jews wanted to back off. The mob wanted to maintain their faith. Demetrius wanted to maintain his business. He wanted to put Christianity in a bad light so that people would reject it and not listen to the gospel message anymore. Does that happen in our world today? Yes. And you think 2023 will be easier to preach the gospel? It will not. It will not. We need to be able to stand our ground. Now, as Paul was wanting to go and defend the gospel, the leader said, no, don't. I think it's interesting that this crowd, their self-centered behavior is revealed. How do we know that? Because as we take a look at verses 35 to 41, there was a city clerk that comes out. He silences the people and addresses all the people. You say, well, how did this guy do that when nobody else could? The city clerk is much more than just a city clerk. He was the liaison between Ephesus and Rome. Kind of like a mayor. He gets out into that theater and stands down and silences everybody. Do you know what's interesting about ungodly people? Ungodly people will preserve self over anything else. Well, they were upset because they thought they were going to lose their God. What was the one thing that would be greater than losing their God? Losing their freedom to operate as an Ephesian city outside of the governess of Rome. Ephesus had a unique status. They were called a free city, which meant that they were self-governed and Rome didn't step in. And the city manager's job was to make sure that Ephesus operated in such a way that Rome didn't have to step in. And so the city manager appeals to their self-centeredness to be able to keep them in a place. You see, if there was a riot in Ephesus, it would violate what's known as Pax Romana. Do you know what Pax Romana is? Peace of Rome. How did they get peace? Peace by force. So what did they do? He said, look it. If you continue in doing this unjustly, Rome's going to come in and govern you, and then you will have no freedom. So you need to knock it off within this. And so the appeal was to their self-centeredness within this. What did he do in the appeal? He affirmed their ungodliness. And he says, you know, and anybody with half a brain knows Artemis is the great God. And this little group of people, they can't change the greatness of Artemis. And what you're doing is unjust. Therefore, just let it go because they have no impact. It's interesting today, as we look at our world, how so many people dismiss Christianity and dismiss the gospel as a powerless, uneffective message. How do they do that? 
When all of these people were coming to faith and all of these miracles were taking place and all of these lives were being transformed, how do you get there? Self-deception. Paul would write to the Romans, Romans 1.25 this. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Does there come a time when people will believe the lie over the truth when the truth is put right in front of them? Absolutely. Do we live in that kind of a world today? Yes, we do. So what should we do? Preach the gospel. Just keep preaching the gospel. And know that not everybody's going to accept that message. And know when you preach the gospel, some people are going to be offended. But at least you love them enough to give them the truth. And even if the the government steps in and dismisses you, don't stop preaching the gospel. It's going to divide families. It's going to divide cultures. It's going to challenge. But we need to preach the gospel and confront the ungodly. Why? Because if we don't confront them with their sin then they can never ask for forgiveness of that sin. And if they don't ask for forgiveness of that sin, if they don't accept the forgiveness of that sin, they'll never be saved. We need to continue to preach that gospel. Is it going to be a popular message? No. Is the mob going to form against you? Probably. But God has given us that message. And we're no better than Jesus because the mob was formed against Him. They're no better than the early church because the mob was formed against them. But do you realize that you are here today because they didn't stop preaching the gospel? Preach the gospel. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you've given to us this message, the gospel message, to be able to share it. And Lord, we know that there is going to be opposition. We know that there are going to be many that reject that message. God, I would pray even now that we, we would be empowered in 2023 to preach the gospel, to stand firm and stand fast and not make it about ourselves and not look at what it's going to cost us to preach the gospel. Lord Jesus, you gave everything for our life. May we pick up our cross, whatever that cross is, follow after you and preach the gospel. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for the new life. May we offer that new life to everyone we talk to in 2023. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. We'll close.
Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.